Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky spoke at the U.N. Special Security Council session today on the war ravaging his country. He says he needs more foreign aid to beat back Russia's ambitions to expand Russia's influence across Europe. Today is Wednesday, September 20th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up in 2014, two scientists, one in Nigeria, one in the U.S., teamed up to quickly diagnose deadly diseases emerging in West Africa. That kind of coordination, that kind of camaraderie, that is the only way we're going to really stop pandemics. More on the partnership that helped avert an Ebola outbreak in Nigeria while the disease was devastating other countries. That's coming up. And the late pipe uh, pop culture icon once said he painted over 30,000 works of art in his lifeline, but it's rare for an authenticated Bob Ross piece to come to the market. One just has. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Contentious exchanges today between Attorney General Merrick Garland and members of the GOP-led House Judiciary Committee. On Capitol Hill, Garland strongly defended the Department of Justice against accusations of bias. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports congressional Republicans have attacked the DOJ's handling of a series of high-profile investigations. Attorney General Garland told lawmakers at this hearing that the Justice Department, under his leadership, operates independently and free of political influence. I am not the president's lawyer. I will add, I am not Congress's prosecutor. The Justice Department works for the American people. Republicans pressed Garland about the department's handling of the investigations into former President Trump, as well as the special counsel probe into President Biden's son, Hunter Biden who was indicted last week on federal felony gun charges. GOP lawmakers accused the department of going easy on the younger Biden, but aggressively taking aim at Trump. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. The U.N. Security Council has held a session on Russia's war against Ukraine, which is in its 19th month. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky criticized the body for not taking action against Russia's invasion. He says the Security Council should suspend Russia's veto power. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov was not in the room when Zelensky spoke. The United Nations is urging world leaders gathered in New York to speed up action on climate change. At the same time, the United Kingdom announced it was backing off some of its climate goals. Details from NPR's Lauren Summer. Emissions are still going up worldwide, which means the planet's temperature is still rising and extreme weather is getting worse. Countries are set to attend major negotiations at the annual climate summit in two months. So Secretary General Antonio Guterres convened leaders today to push them to ramp up their ambition. We must make up time loss to foot dragging, arm twisting and the, the naked greed of entrenched interests raking in billions from fossil fuels. While that was underway, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced the country would be easing off some of its climate goals. A ban on the sale of gas and diesel cars will be delayed five years to 2035, and a requirement to make homes more energy efficient will also be eased. Lauren Summer, NPR News. The head of the Federal Reserve is signaling at least one more interest rate increase this year, but not this week. In light of how far we have come in tightening policy, the committee decided at today's meeting to maintain the target range for the federal funds rate at five and a quarter to five and a half percent and to continue the process of significantly reducing our securities holdings. 
It's the second time this year that Fed Chairman Jerome Powell has announced a pause in the central bank's aggressive campaign to hike the key U.S. interest rate and slow inflation. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey and the head of the MBTA met today to discuss T employee safety. The meeting comes on the heels of a Boston Globe report that a red line train nearly hit track workers in a tunnel earlier this week. WBUR's Rob Lane has more. Federal transit officials are keeping tabs on what they call near misses between MBTA trains and workers, of which there have been several over the past few months. Governor Healy told WBUR's Radio Boston such incidents are unacceptable, but she has confidence in T-General Manager Phil Eng to fix the issues. Safety of workers and riders is our top priority. And so, you know, nobody wants this with greater urgency than I do. The governor's meeting with Eng today comes after a meeting yesterday also focused on transit safety between Healy, Eng, and the head of the Federal Transit Administration. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. Massachusetts taxpayers will not be getting an automatic tax rebate this year. Last year, a 1980s law kicked in that gave nearly $3 billion in surplus tax collections back to residents. This year, State Auditor Diana DiZoglio's office says tax collections for the last fiscal year fell more than $4 billion short of the cap needed to trigger that law once again. State lawmakers are considering a proposal to allow students with prescriptions for medical marijuana to use it at school. Democratic Senator Susan Moran of Falmouth proposed the bill. It got a hearing yesterday before the Joint Committee on Cannabis Policy. She says if kids prescribed medical marijuana for serious medical conditions could access it on school grounds, it would help them focus on learning. There's a lack of awareness of the trauma of whether it's an emotional issue or a medical issue like seizures with kids. We need to do everything we possibly can to combat that. Medical marijuana use was legalized in Massachusetts in 2012, but all forms of the substance are still prohibited on school property. A glorious day out there right now. 74 degrees should be clear and chillier overnight tonight in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, bright sunshine again. Highs near 72. Could see the sunshine once again on Friday before some clouds move in for the weekend. This is WBUR. It's 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. An unusual thing happened a couple years ago. Nearly three million children in the United States were lifted out of poverty. That's because of an expansion of the child tax credit, which was passed as a part of the federal COVID relief package. Fast forward two and a half years, those expanded tax credits have expired, and new census data released last week show child poverty has surged to pre-pandemic levels. Many in Washington would like to see the child tax credit expanded again, including Florida Senator Marco Rubio, a Republican. Senator Rubio, unlike his Democratic counterparts, wants the expanded child tax credit to include work requirements. Senator Rubio, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, let's just get right into it. Explain why you think work requirements are so necessary here. Well, that I mean, certainly work requirement is one way to describe it. But basically, the way we've always viewed the child tax credit is you have a job and you get to expense 
the cost of raising children, the way businesses get to expend the investments they make. If we can have tax breaks for businesses that make investments, we most certainly should have the ability of working people to keep more of the money they earn in order to, to raise their children, which is the most important investment we're making in our country. So that's what the tax credit has always been. It is a credit against taxes. Now, the problem was that people under a certain income level had no income tax liability to apply it to, which is why we always argued that it should be applied, at least part of it, towards the payroll tax, which is the primary tax liability of working parents. So yeah, it requires you to have a job because it requires you to have some tax liability that the credit applies towards. But I also think it recognizes that the purpose of this program always was and should continue to be to allow working parents raising children to be able to keep more of the money they earn to be able to afford or help afford the costs of raising children in the modern economy. I just want to take a second to spell out the data here because I think it's really important. The new data that came out last week showed that all of the gains when it comes to child poverty that we saw in 2021, they were lost in 2022. There was an alarming rise in child poverty last year from 5.2% in 2021 to 12.4% in 2022. So given the fact that we're seeing this problem balloon into this huge need, how would you go about addressing that in an urgent manner? Well, first of all, I think to measure just based on one year, you basically had one year in which you had a child allowance. It wasn't a child tax credit from 2000 per child to $3,600 per child. So suddenly families are reporting $3,600 per child, uh, zero to five and 3000 for children above six to up to 17. And then it expires. So you're going to have that jump. But, but that is different from what we're trying to achieve here, which is we're trying to achieve an economy that produces the kind of work that parents are no longer in poverty, families are no longer in poverty. And that's a much bigger struggle if you think about what, we, and that really should be the cornerstone of what our focus is on economic policy. And I think we've lost that focus over the last 20 or 30 years, as we have seen economic decisions driven purely by market outcomes without considering the national interest in regards to that creation of that stable work. This is a topic we've been following closely on the show. And my colleague Ari Shapiro spoke to a pediatrician, Megan Sandell, last week. And this is what she told him about what she's seeing right now. What we're starting to see is kids flatlining, kids who should be growing, should be gaining weight, should be, frankly, growing the brain that they need for the rest of their lives. And we're seeing kids not grow. We're seeing kids lose weight which when you're three or four years old, that is a medical emergency, what's going on. And a lot of times when we really dig deeper, it's simply because people can't afford enough food and are stretching beyond what they can deal with. Senator Rubio, what would you say to someone like Dr. Sandel, who is seeing these kids as patients day in and day out, and who is clearly not just worried, but deeply frustrated and alarmed by what she is seeing in these patients? Well, I would say it's terrible to hear that in the most advanced economy in the history of the world, in the wealthiest nation in the world, uh, where an extraordinary amount of wealth is being produced every day. And we don't envy that wealth and we don't discourage it. But when we made the decision 20 or 30 years ago that the only thing that mattered was efficiency in our economy, completely ignored our national interest in having an economy that both created economic growth and at the same time created stable, reliable, dignified, good paying jobs for Americans. Uh, we created an environment where people are struggling how to find that kind of work. And the other is inflation. When you look at the basic essentials, food, gasoline prices, all those prices have climbed alarmingly high uh, for everyone. And that, of course, puts an even greater strain on those that are struggling to begin with uh, to find jobs that pay enough. 
I think the current levels of how we measure inflation traditionally do not sufficiently take into account what it means when the things that cost more, sometimes 200% increases, are the basic necessities. I understand throughout our conversation, there's kind of this fundamental notion of this is a tax credit, so therefore it's linked to someone's employment. But I guess after hearing what Dr. Sandel just said and the urgency with which she's talking about these three or four-year-old kids that are losing weight, not growing the way that they should, how do you think about the best way to reach those families and those kids with the urgency that their health needs to ensure that the kids who need the help the most are able to receive it as quickly as possible. Well, listen, I think in that realm, and again, children should not be punished because parents don't want to go work or what have you, or parents can't find a job, you know? So the the, the point is, and that is that there's a bunch of other programs out there that we should have the debate over, whether there should be an increase in nutritional assistance, whether there needs to be a more targeted uh, focus on some of those social safety net programs for purposes of helping children who face uh, these circumstances. My argument with the tax credit is it's not the notion, it's what it's always been. The child tax credit has always been and has widely been accepted as a tax credit to be applied towards earnings. If you turn it into just simply a transfer payment, you've absolutely gutted the tax credit concept And I think you endanger, you endanger it moving forward uh, because that's not what people thought they were voting for when they first authorized it. It's tough enough as it is to get it increased. If you turn it into a transfer payment, I think it completely, you might as well not even call it a tax credit anymore. It, It becomes a transfer payment program. Republican Senator Marco Rubio of Florida. Senator, thank you. Thank you. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky attended a gathering of world leaders in New York this week. He also addressed an issue dividing American politicians. Zelensky wants the U.S. to continue arming and funding Ukraine's defense against the Russian invasion. And Democrats and most Republicans still support this, but right-wing Republicans increasingly object. Zelensky spoke with our colleague Steve Inskeep of NPR's Morning Edition, who is in New York. Hi, Steve. Hey there, Elsa. Hi. Okay, so how did Zelensky address those objections from some Republicans? Well, he's careful always not to say that he's wading into American politics, but he knows what's going on here, and you you mentioned it. Uh, some right-wing Republicans have been skeptical of this project from the beginning, and now House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said he would not accept a blank check, and this is now getting tangled up in these broader U.S. budget negotiations here in September. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, Zelensky argued that our two countries, the United States and Ukraine, still share and are fighting for similar values. Most of our conversation, I should tell you, he spoke Ukrainian, but he switched to English when I asked about this and became pretty passionate, knowing that he's appealing directly to the American people. Let's listen. If a Republican lawmaker, who you may meet during this visit, says... What's in it for the United States? Your answer is American values. Is that right? Yes, of course. We have the same values, freedom and democracy. And that's why we are fighting against Russia. And they want to cut it, to, to blow it, and, and, and that's it. And they not only think about it, they showed it. They killed our people, women, men. You saw it. They deported children. So you they are bombing civilians. It's not about only front line. It's not simple war. And he says the way that Russia has waged the war has shown Russia's contrasting values. 
Well, how much longer, Steve, does Zelensky expect Ukraine to need assistance from other countries like the U.S.? What do you this, think? This was a big question on my mind uh, <laughs> because this feels like a long war. I've covered wars. I've studied war. It's pretty basic to know that offense is harder than defense. The Ukrainians uh, had a miracle in stopping the Russian offensive, but now they're trying to push back the other way, and that is proving very difficult. So. I raised with Zelensky the possibility that the hardest part of this war, the deadliest part of this war even, may be ahead, and he disagreed with me. Let's listen to that. I believe that the most difficult part of this war is already in the past, when we prevented the occupation of our capital city, and together with the Kyiv region, we prevented the occupation of the major part of Ukraine, and we control the 80% of our country, we deoccupied that. I'm confident about the situation because we can see that whenever we start pressing on the Russians, the Russians are starting to retreat. And now we are having the initiative on the battlefield. And the Russians have retreated some, but there's a very, very long way to go. Well, let me ask you, Steve, how did President Zelensky seem to you personally? Because he hasn't left the country much. There's no end in sight to this war, at least at this moment. So what were his spirits like, his mood to you? Well, he's an unassuming character when he arrived in our rather crowded hotel suite where we were to meet him. Uh, and it's a very interesting person. He's a very interesting person to meet. You know, when you're getting ready to meet a president, you put on a suit and tie. So I was dressed that way. I'm also, by the way, uh, wearing a suit and tie for you right now. <laughs> Thank you. Just I quite so appreciate you know. that. But of course, he's wearing the military fatigue or military gear that he's worn elsewhere in yeah, the world. Uh, and But but when all attention focuses on him, you get a sense of the weight on this person. And parts of our conversation were contentious when we looked into questions like, will Ukraine be able to resume their elections as they fight as the front line of democracy? And real quick, Stephen, about the 30 seconds we have left. I mean, what did Zelensky say about priorities for when the war ends? He did... Uh, talk about the end of the war and talked about uh, promoting a liberal economy. He wants a free and open economy that can encourage investment, encourage recovery and rebuilding, and encourage the millions of Ukrainians who fled to come back. That is NPR's Steve Inskeep. Thank you so much, Steve. Always glad to do it. And I understand that there will be lots more on Morning Edition in the next couple days. The All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. King Charles is making his first visit to France since Brexit in a symbolic gesture that Britain is ready to move on from the contentious separation from the EU. That story and much more coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. And Davis Malm, committed to protecting your intellectual property one idea at a time. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. Stocks slid on Wall Street today. The Dow fell about two-tenths of a percent. S&P lost nearly one full percent, and the Nasdaq dropped more than one and a half percent. Bostonians looking to bike along historic canals and eat genuine Stroop waffles now have another way to get to Amsterdam. Starting today, JetBlue is offering nonstop flights between Logan and Schiphol Airport in the Netherlands. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with Assassins. Stephen Sondheim's musical masterpiece looks inside the shattered minds of presidential assassins through October 15th. LyricStage.com. And Delta Dental, 
reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Red Sox are taking on the Rangers this afternoon in Arlington, Texas, and they're taking it on the chin. In the seventh inning, the Sox are losing 15-4. to In the forecast, clear skies overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-50s. For tomorrow, should be sunny once again with highs about 72. May see the sunshine again on Friday. 74 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. In Morocco, communities are still suffering after a 6.8 magnitude earthquake earlier this month left nearly 3,000 people dead and thousands more injured. That's according to the EU's Emergency Response Coordination Center. In addition to the human toll, thousands of buildings were destroyed, and major questions remain about how to rebuild and house those people who have been displaced. Kit Miyamoto has thought a lot about this. He's a structural engineer who specializes in earthquake resiliency, and he's currently in Morocco traveling around the villages and assessing damage from the earthquake. When I caught up with him from Marrakesh, I asked him what's been standing out so far. First of all, yeah, if the villages or structures are built on top of rock area, like a bedrock, you know, versus the soft soil in the bottom valley, it has a huge difference in performance. So that's something that uh, we noticed that first thing, okay? And uh, secondly, this area been obviously earthquake prone for millions of years, you know, naturally, right? So interesting part of it, Actually, believe it or not, traditional architecture here evolved throughout this earthquakes over the centuries. So if it built right way, like a really follow the tradition way, it actually performed really well. Interesting. The more traditional techniques of building these homes is actually more secure during earthquakes. Exactly. For example, where they built a roof, roof is made of a wood. And uh, you actually put this wood or timber almost penetrate through the wall. So when the shaking happens, it doesn't fall off. So if you build like that, actually, they're almost indestructible, actually, because such a solid, solid structure, you know. But unfortunately, over the years, you know, many builders told me that owners want to cut costs. So therefore, they don't want to pay for it. So builders cut corners. And some of the uh, villages we visited, it's pretty amazing. I mean, the one village we visited, but it was about 500 people used to live there. 20% died. We're talking about, you know, only 400 left. This is amazing. Just that the earthquake was at 11 p.m. And here people that do stay up late. So, you know, it was a good thing 11 p.m. Even if it's at 1 a.m., 3 a.m., probably more people died, you know. Because they would have been in bed and not knowing to escape. That's right. That's exactly correct. How much of a risk are aftershocks? 
at this point? Very big. And how much is that complicating efforts to provide safe homes for thousands of displaced people right now? It, it's very, uh, risks are high. I mean, aftershock usually lasts for magnitude 6.8, it will last probably one year. And sometimes aftershocks even bigger than the first one. That's why people are pretty scared. They don't want to go back home yet. Even at some of our, you know, village buildings are completely fine. There's no cracks, but they don't want to they don't want to go there, which I, I completely understand that. So as you're looking to help these communities rebuild there, how hard do you think it will be to balance the desire to preserve the cultural aspects of so much of the architecture there that has been destroyed while also making them safer? I think that the both coexist. If you really look carefully how the ancients, you know, built, you know, they understand the seismic risk. They understand how they build things, you know, to preserve lives. You know, they know how to do that. We just got to make sure that type of a very detailed understand, you know, nature of it, you know, what they're doing it to extract the information and then train the other masons and contractors in the area. And as these communities embark on the huge challenge of rebuilding, what is most needed right now? I think money. I was talking to some village elders, maybe 50% of a houses there is completely collapsed, right? Gone. And they lost something about like 40 people out of 300 people. I mean, just, just bad. They said that they are going to stay. They want to rebuild. My question was, do you have enough money to reconstruct? They said, no, it's, it's a, it's a poor area. We estimate about the, uh, somewhere between $300,000 to $500,000. $500,000 to reconstruct whole thing, whole village. I mean, yes, that's a lot of money. But also, if you look at how many people impacting that, it's so much. You know, talking about 500 people here. You know what I mean? So I think that each of us have to contribute little by little to make this happen because this disaster is a huge. That is Kit Miyamoto. He's a structural engineer who's currently assessing earthquake damage in Morocco. Thank you so much for spending even this small amount of time with us. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. A painting by the late artist Bob Ross could be yours, if you have a spare $10 million. The particular work for sale, titled A Walk in the Woods, was the very first that he made for his TV show, The Joy of Painting. Bob Ross would go on to paint hundreds of canvases in front of the camera, but this is just one of a handful that have been up for sale since his death in 1995. NPR's Emily Olson tells us why. Bob Ross didn't just talk about painting. He actually showed his viewers, step by step, how to make a landscape scene come alive. And there's no secret to this. Anybody can paint. All you need is a dream in your heart, a little practice. He typically made three paintings for each of his shows. One as a template, one for the camera, and a third afterwards for use in instructional materials. So if you do the math, that means Ross painted well over 1,100 canvases for the joy of painting. And that was just for the show. He said he painted around 30,000 works of art over his lifetime. And yet... One of the toughest finds is to try to find an original Bob Ross painting. That's Ryan Nelson, the owner of Modern Artifact Gallery in Minneapolis. It's one of the few places where you can find original Ross works up for sale. Nelson said Ross often just gave away his paintings to people. 
people who didn't always realize the kind of treasures they had on their hands. I can't tell you how many times I've bought paintings from other people that have found them at their local thrift stores. Roughly 1,200 of the original Ross paintings are being stored by his surviving company, Bob Ross, Inc., Kowalski says she can imagine how Ross might have reacted to that sticker price. Bob's thing was never really selling his paintings. He wanted you to paint your own and put it on your wall. So this painting that's up for sale now, A Walk in the Woods, it's a pretty rare commodity. It underwent a painstaking analysis in order to prove it was a Bob Ross original and also that it was the very first one he painted for his show. And the way we did it was just very, very carefully study all of the different knife work and brush strokes. It turns out the work had been auctioned off in 1983, probably for less than $100. That's according to Ryan Nelson, whose gallery now owns the painting and is selling it for nearly $10 million. Kowalski says she can imagine how Ross might have reacted to that sticker price. I think he would have just blushed and giggled like crazy. <laughs> I do. <laughs> After all, for the so-called people's painter, Inspiring others was always the goal. The fame? That was just a happy accident. Emily Olson, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. Coming up in about 20 minutes, an effort to diversify genetic studies has led to a discovery, a gene variant that raises the risk of Parkinson's in people of African ancestry. A beautiful September afternoon with temperatures heading all the way to the mid-50s overnight tonight, so pull up the blanket. Tomorrow should stay sunny and dry, not too warm, about the low 70s. The work week ends with sunshine and clouds on Friday, still dry, highs in the upper 60s. And that could be it for the stellar weather. We could have rain moving in for the weekend. Red Sox and Rangers are going into the eighth inning down in Texas, and it's tough going for Boston. The score is still 15-4 Rangers. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, advancing together by using collaboration to drive new discoveries. More at umassmed.edu together. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia shows its values by the way it's waging war. Not just a war on the front line, no energy system, occupied Zaporizhia, nuclear plant. What will be next? Zelensky makes a case for defending democratic values on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Six days into the United Auto Workers strike and General Motors and Stellantis say they are temporarily laying off thousands of union workers in response as the UAW threatens to idle more plants on Friday if automakers don't meet demands for better pay and benefits. NPR's Kumila Damanaski has the latest. 
The UAW has started the strike in an unusual way, focusing on just three plants and intentionally picking plants that wouldn't shut down entire supply chains. As a consequence, the immediate impact has been muted. Still, there are some knock-on effects. Stellantis says 68 workers have been sent home at a plant that feeds some parts to a shutdown factory, and 300 more could go home soon. Ford and GM have made similar announcements. The companies usually give workers some supplemental pay when factories are closed like this, but they are not doing that during the strike. The union says it will pay those workers out of the strike fund and that more plants, no one knows which, could be shut down before this weekend if talks don't progress. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. President Biden has met Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for the first time since the Israeli leader returned to office late last year. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports the two leaders discussed efforts to broker diplomatic relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia, as well as concerns about Israeli democracy. Today's meeting took place in a New York hotel with Israeli protesters outside. At the start of their meeting, Biden said he would speak to Netanyahu about democratic checks and balances. Netanyahu said he is committed to democracy. And he said Biden could make history, brokering diplomatic ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Netanyahu also said Iran should face a credible military threat if it develops nuclear weapons. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Stocks finish lower across the board on Wall Street today. The Dow down two-tenths of a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey has written to the Biden administration to ask for more support to help migrants coming to Massachusetts. She says some 10,000 new arrivals are now living in the state's emergency shelter system, and neither the administration nor congressional leaders are responding adequately to the crisis. We need action. And we've given them exactly what they need to do. You know, my letter to the, to, the, to the White House could not have been more clear in terms of simple steps that could be taken to address this. Also, Congress has an opportunity to act. Um, but so far, you know, they're not willing to. Healy spoke today on WBUR's Radio Boston. Earlier this year, Healy up opened new shelter spaces and declared a state of emergency to deal with a high number of migrants who have arrived. The criminal investigation connected to the transport of 49 migrants to Martha's Vineyard last September is now over. The Martha's Vineyard Times reports that the district attorney from Bear County, Texas, will present the case to a grand jury in the coming weeks. That grand jury will determine whether a felony offense was committed. The migrants were sent from Texas to Massachusetts on flights arranged by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The National Fisheries Service is getting $82 million in federal funds to help protect endangered right whales. Eve Zuckoff reports. Conservationists are applauding the investment, pointing to the fact that North Atlantic right whales are approaching extinction, with fewer than 350 individuals remaining. The biggest part of the funds will go toward better monitoring systems for the whales, including satellite tagging and acoustic monitoring. Almost $18 million will go toward developing on-demand or ropeless fishing technology, and then training fishermen to use the new gear, which is designed to reduce whale entanglements. The rest of the money will focus on reducing whale collisions with boats and enforcement efforts. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zuckoff. 74 degrees in Boston. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice. On view now. Learn more at PEM.org. 
Starlit skies tonight, a bit chilly as we dip to the mid-50s. Tomorrow should bring back the sunshine. Some clouds around, but a lot more sun, with highs just above 70, which is where it is now, 74 degrees in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Britain's King Charles is in France on a three-day state visit. His busy schedule includes meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron, visiting Notre Dame, and a grand dinner at Versailles. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley has been watching and tells us more. It's not often you hear a French military choir sing God Save the King under the Arc de Triomphe, but this day was all about welcoming King Charles to France. Le roi Charles qui va arriver à Paris. The live TV coverage began as soon as he stepped off the plane with Queen Camilla onto a red carpet at Orly Airport. The British monarch's visit to France last spring had to be postponed amidst protests over French retirement reform. Florence Fauché, an expert on French-British relations at Paris's Sciences Po University, says France was always meant to be King Charles's first overseas visit. This relationship is indeed symbolically extremely important. France and, and the UK have always had uh, close yet complex relationships, a bit like siblings, I would say. After the ceremony with President Emmanuel Macron paying tribute to the millions of British and French soldiers who fought and died together in World War I, King Charles rode down the Champs-Élysées with Macron before a -a tête-à-tête at the Élysée Palace. The French media are gaga over the king. Charlie in Paris read the front page of newspaper Liberation. (laughs) And as guests arrived at the dinner at Versailles, commentators dissected the Battle of Waterloo along with tonight's dinner menu. King Charles and Queen Camilla are joined by 350 guests, including Mick Jagger and Hugh Grant, who live in France. Analysts said the visit was also meant to mend hard feelings over Brexit. I think the UK is now at a stage where they seem to intend to reopen, possibly, discussions with the EU with a more leveled approach. And uh, this is uh, one of the means to demonstrate this. The conversation tonight will likely be in French, which King Charles speaks as well as Macron speaks English. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. More than a decade ago, a pair of scientists, one in Nigeria and one here in the U.S., noticed a worrying trend. A deadly disease would emerge in West Africa, but it often went unnoticed or misdiagnosed. That could have pandemic-level consequences. So these two scientists set out to do something about it. NPR's Ari Daniel has their story. In the summer of 2014, at the airport in Lagos, Nigeria, a passenger landed with a fever. Neighboring countries were in the middle of what would become the largest Ebola outbreak ever. So health workers were deeply concerned when this guy arrived in a city of 20 plus million. We were in the middle of tragedy. 
on the precipice of a cataclysm. It could be unstoppable. Pardis Sibeti is a computational geneticist at the Broad Institute in Cambridge, Mass. The man was tested for Ebola by doctors at a public laboratory in Lagos, but the results were inconclusive, which, unfortunately, is all too common. If you can't diagnose a disease, it's going to be very difficult to manage it. This is Christian Happy. He's a molecular biologist at Redeemer's University in Nigeria, and he and Sibeti are an infectious disease-fighting duo. She's what I call my better academic half. <laughs> I also call him my ride or die, and I just know he will always have my back. The pair met while studying malaria 25 years ago. They grew close while working together on a Lassa fever project in Sierra Leone. Then came late 2013, when people began falling ill in Guinea in West Africa. It'd start with a fever and could end with death. It took months before health authorities were sufficiently concerned to take blood samples. The sample had to be shipped to France, and it took another three weeks for them to have the result. That result, Ebola. But during those weeks and months, the virus had been spreading and mutating and killing. It barreled into Sierra Leone, pummeling the hospital where the pair had close collaborators. It spread like wildfire through the clinical staff. So I was reeling at that point. In part, she says, because so much of this suffering was avoidable. Sibeti and Happy considered an inspiring possibility. What if the active monitoring of viruses like this one could happen on the ground in Africa by Africans? We really thought, okay, now it is time to empower the local healthcare workers to detect these pathogens that are circulating to do things by themselves. So the two co-founded ASCID, the African Center of Excellence for Genomics of Infectious Diseases in Nigeria. Happy became its director, and in a stroke of good fortune, it came into being in early 2014, just as the Ebola outbreak was unfolding. So when the test of that feverish passenger in Lagos came back inconclusive, the authorities rang up Happy. Maybe ASCID could diagnose the man's disease. I knew I was going to be dealing with something very dangerous. And I remember telling my wife, if I don't make it back, take care of the children. And she told me, go, God is going to be with you. Happy drove to the lab, put on the PPE that Sibeti had sent over for a situation like this. Just before dawn, they had their answer. We were able to see that, oh my God, this is Ebola. Happy advised officials on how to implement contact tracing, isolation, and ongoing monitoring. In Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone, more than 11,000 people died of Ebola. But in Nigeria, there were only eight deaths, largely because Happy and ASCID were able to diagnose Ebola there, not in weeks or days, but in hours. This is ASCID's war plan for thwarting disease in the region. Let's say someone shows up at a clinic or hospital with a fever. But you don't know whether it's malaria fever or it's Ebola fever or it's yellow fever. Everything is fever. ASCID has a battery of tests for each of these and more. But if those don't return any hits, then they sequence the genetic material of the unknown pathogen. And that gives them a way to detect this new thing. You can just immediately that day be off to the races with a working diagnostic. Which can then be pushed out to health facilities to track the outbreak and take measures to contain it. ASCID's now empowering others to do this work themselves. They've trained over 1,500 people from 48 African countries. The most profound thing that ASCID is doing is creating a continent of people who are classmates in the same enterprise together. That kind of coordination, that kind of camaraderie, that is the only way we're going to really stop pandemics. 
This spring, ASKID will move into a new state-of-the-art building on the Redeemers University campus. At the opening ceremony, they'll play a new mix of this song. Sibeti, who's also a rock musician, by the way, wrote the lyrics in the middle of the Ebola outbreak back in 2014, right after she and Happy lost all those dear colleagues and friends. When I listened to this, I was like, wow. I can tell you I had tears in my eyes. Sibeti remembers when those words came to her, a tumble of pain and purpose and family. We're in this fight together. Like, that's all I know. Like, that's all I know, right, is that we are in this fight together. Ari Daniel, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Attorney General Merrick Garland was on Capitol Hill today to testify before the Republican-led House Judiciary Committee. The hearing was Garland's first before Congress since Justice Department prosecutors brought federal charges against former President Trump and against President Biden's son, Hunter. NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas has been watching and joins us now. Hey, Ryan. Hey there. Okay, so normally this would be a routine hearing to talk about the department, its work. But, I mean, there's nothing routine about this moment for the Justice Department considering the indictments against Trump and Hunter Biden, right? That's 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 right. This, this really is an unprecedented situation for the Justice Department with the two uh, federal indictments that you mentioned, the two against Trump, uh, the recent indictment against uh, Hunter Biden, and of course, uh, the 2024 presidential campaign looming on the horizon here. Um, Garland is, of course, cognizant of all of that and how politically charged the atmosphere around those investigations is. And so he tried at the beginning of this hearing today to stake out his independence uh, as well as the department's independence. I am not the president's lawyer. I will add, I am not Congress's prosecutor. The Justice Department works for the American people. Uh, He added that the department doesn't take orders from anyone on who or what to criminally investigate. And that's a message that Garland has repeated over the past two years. But he sounded, to me at least, more forceful in his statement today uh, in this moment in time. Interesting. And how did Republicans respond to that? Well, look, they've been accusing Garland of weaponizing the Justice Department, of going after Trump and January 6th rioters and going easy on Hunter Biden. And those are allegations that we heard from them again today. Uh, A big focus for Republicans was on the department's handling uh, of the Hunter Biden investigation. That's an investigation that has been led since 2019 uh, by the U.S. attorney for Delaware, a man by the name of David Weiss. Uh, Weiss was originally appointed during the Trump administration, and Garland kept him on as U.S. attorney specifically to continue to lead the Hunter probe uh, even after the Biden administration came into office. Now, Republican criticism of the investigation is driven, at least in part, 
uh, by testimony from two IRS agents who have accused the department, in essence, of, of kind of slow rolling the probe. Now, Garland today repeated again and again in the face of Republican questions that he has not interfered in Weiss's investigation and that Weiss has had the authority to pursue this, this case uh, as he sees fit. And then Garland recently appointed Weiss as special counsel, right? That's right. That happened last month. Uh, and as part of that, Weiss will eventually write a report on the investigation and likely testify before Congress. Uh, and while the investigation has been running, as I said, since 2019, Hunter Biden was indicted last week on three federal uh, felony gun charges, uh, and he could still face other charges. Right. OK, well, I mean, the 2024 election is just around the corner and the Republican front runner, former President Trump, is facing two federal indictments. Mm-hmm. How big a role do you think that larger political reality played in today's questioning of Garland? So Garland has tried since he took over as attorney general to, to extricate the department from politics, to wall it off from outside influence. And a lot of legal observers think he's done a good job of reestablishing norms on that front. But it is impossible to shield the Justice Department from the political winds of Washington, from the political winds of, of, of Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is an election next year. The Republican frontrunner, former President Trump, is facing, as you said, two federal indictments. Uh, and of course, House Republicans have just launched an impeachment inquiry of President Biden. And Hunter's personal and legal troubles, including the special counsel's investigation, are central to that. So hearings like today aren't so much about oversight as they are an opportunity for lawmakers to try to advance uh, their own political narratives. That is NPR's Ryan Lucas. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR as All Things Considered, House Republicans in competitive districts could face blowback for attempts to impeach President Biden. That story and much more is still to come. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brown University's Master's in Technology Leadership. Preparing strategic leaders with innovative skills. Professional.brown.edu. And Volante Farms in Needham. With the first hint of fall, local apples, mums, and cider donuts fresh every morning. Volantefarms.com for a current list of apples and hours. Clear skies for the quarter moon tonight, down around the mid-50s overnight. We should see a good share of sunshine tomorrow, down a few degrees from today, about 72 for a high. Friday, pretty much the same thing. Sunny skies, fair weather clouds, breezy and dry, around 70 degrees. Too early to say for sure, but we may have wet weather moving in for the weekend. At the top of the ninth inning, down in Arlington, Texas, the Red Sox are taking a spanking. Rangers are still in the lead, 15-4. to This is 90.9 WBUR, 74 degrees in the Boston area at 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. And Vermont Tourism, trip ideas and planning tools available at vermontvacation.com. Vermont, a little bit like a dream, very much open. More than 100 million people in America have medical debt. Some of those trying to help have to resort to debt-buying companies. We understand that what we do is a Band-Aid on a broken system. What we do is, you know, we're helping people today. How does the debt-buying industry work? Who wins and who loses? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. An effort to diversify genetic studies has led to a discovery about Parkinson's disease. NPR's John Hamilton reports on the identification of a gene variant that raises the risk of Parkinson's in people of African ancestry. Scientists have found dozens of gene variants associated with Parkinson's, a brain disorder that can impair a person's ability to move and speak. But many other risky variants remain undetected. Andy Singleton of the National Institutes of Health says that's partly because of the way most genetic studies have been conducted. Our basis of knowledge for genetics in Parkinson's disease was limited to northern European populations. So we decided to diversify that endeavor and seek ways to globalize genetics. By joining the Global Parkinson's Genetics Program, which includes researchers from around the world. The goal? Collect and analyze genetic samples from more than 150,000 people with a range of ancestries. Sarah Bondre-Siga, a molecular geneticist at the NIH, says the first step was to make sure local groups collecting samples were also benefiting from the effort. For a project to succeed, we have to always ask, is this something you are interested in? Is this something you want to learn? And then take it from there. Many groups wanted easy access to the genetic information they were collecting and help learning how to analyze it. So Bandre Siga says she and her colleagues created an online database and a training curriculum for scientists on the ground. So basically they will not be only sample donors, but they will be researchers that will tackle the, the problems. Mary Macarius, a data scientist at the NIH, says this meant putting training modules online so people anywhere could study subjects like bioinformatics and molecular biology. Instead of just delivering the modules in English or in Spanish, now we have scripts with all the training translated into over a hundred or so languages. Less than five years after its launch, the effort has produced a notable finding. It came from an analysis of nearly 200,000 samples from people in Nigeria as well as U.S. residents with African ancestry. Andy Singleton of the NIH says the analysis found that Parkinson's was more common in people whose chromosomes had at least one copy of a specific gene variant. If you carry one, it increases your risk by about 50 percent, something like that. If you carry two, it increases your risk by about 400 percent. The variant affects a gene called GBA1. A different variant of that gene is known to raise the risk of Parkinson's in people of European ancestry. But this new one is found almost exclusively in people of African descent. And Singleton says it affects brain cells in a different way. This shows the potential of working together, the potential of making new findings in populations around the world and using this global collaboration to understand disease. The discovery, published in The Lancet Neurology, was cause for celebration at a scientific meeting in Denmark a few weeks ago. Akemeni Riley is managing director of Aligning Science Across Parkinson's. The air about the whole meeting was just a buzz with excitement, right? This is much earlier than any of us expected to get a major finding, so that's, that's one big thing. Riley, an expert in molecular medicine, says the finding is especially meaningful to her because she has family from Nigeria. And she says the discovery could eventually help scientists develop a treatment specifically for people with this gene variant. We can then target that specific protein that's gone wrong or specific molecule. That's the goal, is to get to that level of precision. Riley predicts there will be more discoveries about Parkinson's now that genetic studies are going global. John Hamilton, NPR News. 
That bottle of extra virgin olive oil sitting in your kitchen might not be something you use every single day. The good stuff is expensive after all. But in Spain, olive oil has been quite affordable until now. Miguel Macias brings us this report. Eating spicy at a popular breakfast spot in a working-class neighborhood of Seville in southern Spain. People often eat breakfast out. By far the most popular kind of breakfast is toast with olive oil and a Spanish ham. Spain is the world's largest producer of olive oil, and most of it comes from the south, Andalusia. So it's no surprise that tables at cafes feature an actual bottle of extra virgin olive oil customers can freely pour on their toast. You'll find it at breakfast, in most daily meals, and families always have plenty of olive oil at home. You get the point. Olive oil here is cheap. Basically, we had had at least two very bad crops, so that has created a certain scarcity. Cheap no more. That was Javier Rivas, an economist and professor at EAE Business School in Madrid. He says the recent drought has cut production of olive oil in Spain drastically. The weather conditions have been very bad for crops in general. We have a terrible drought, and that has provoked that the oil prices have increased more than 100% in 11 months. And it's not just the lack of rain in Andalusia, which is down 22%. It's also the heat. The number of days over 100 degrees has skyrocketed in the past two years. Dos años así se carga el olivar. Moises Caballero is secretary for olive oil makers in the region of Estepa. They pride themselves in the high quality of their extra virgin olive oil. He says that two more years of this kind of climate will simply kill olive tree plantations in the south of Spain. The most strategic element is water. It's a very delicate matter, and we are already late when it comes to addressing it. Our sector is ready to invest in new technologies. Such as desalinating seawater to use it in a highly efficient way to water olive tree plantations. But this kind of price hike might become a common occurrence. The European Central Bank recently published a study concluding that climate change will result in a yearly increase of food prices and overall inflation. Moises Caballero likes to put things in context. This product cannot be so cheap anymore. We need to change public perception, to reclaim the role of extra virgin olive oil as the best vegetable oil in the world. So instead of talking about how prices have increased so much, we should realize that such low historic prices were simply ridiculous. When asked about whether speculation with the price of olive oil might be taking place, he says... Nobody here is speculating with the price of olive oil. It is simply that there is not enough of it. We've gone through two years where the production has been down by 50%. And that drastic drop in production volume is not only affecting the local market. Exports to the U.S. are down by 25% due to the high prices and the competition of cheaper olive oil coming from other countries, such as Tunisia, Turkey and Morocco. Alberto Barquín manages Alimentación en Garnita, a small grocery store in the Macarena neighborhood of Seville. He sells jars of 2 and 5 liters of high-quality extra virgin olive oil. But he might stop selling it altogether. He's tired of the weekly price increases. You order olive oil on a Monday and the price has increased. The following Monday it goes up again. 40 cents, 50 cents, a whole euro. It goes up every week. Outside of Alimentación en Carnita, a small square crowded with tables and neighbors having breakfast. And for now, despite the prices, it doesn't seem like locals are giving up on their toast with extra virgin olive oil. 
For NPR News, I'm Miguel Macias in Seville. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. SmartMouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters or at smartmouth.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR, 73 degrees in Boston. A beautiful day today, leading to a clear and chillier night tonight. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, bright sunshine again. Highs near 72. Could see the sunshine again on Friday before clouds move in over the weekend. Maybe some rain as well. Red Sox got demolished in Texas today. They lost to the Rangers 15-5 to to close out the series. 73 degrees now at 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with Assassins. Stephen Sondheim's musical masterpiece looks inside the shattered minds of presidential assassins through October 15th. LyricStage.com. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Five Americans who were detained for years in Iran stepped off a plane in the U.S. this week and into the arms of their loved ones. When you finally get to hug someone you've been struggling to get out for the past eight years and you finally get to do it. And it's joy, absolute joy. We'll hear from the brother of one of the former prisoners. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the Federal Reserve held interest rates steady today, but hinted that one more rate hike may be needed this year to bring inflation under control. And the system Massachusetts uses to manage the wait list for subsidized housing is flawed. Hundreds of apartments have sat empty for a year or more, while thousands of people hope for housing. Housing officials are frustrated. If we had more resources, both for materials, contracts, and especially labor and personnel, I have no doubt we'd be seeing these vacancies turn around in half the time. Part two of our investigation coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in New York, I'm Jack Spear. Lawmakers on the House Judiciary Committee questioned Attorney General Merrick Garland today. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports that during his testimony, Garland repeatedly defended the Justice Department against Republican claims of political bias. Merrick Garland pushed back against those allegations, telling lawmakers that he's not the president's lawyer, nor Congress's prosecutor. Garland also told the committee that the Justice Department is open to legitimate oversight, but will not be intimidated. What is dangerous is when anyone singles out a career prosecutor or a career FBI agent, and we know as a matter of fact that that kind of singling out 
has led to threats. Attesting to the Justice Department's independence, Garland also told lawmakers that he has not interfered in the investigation into Hunter Biden and that no one told him to indict former President Donald Trump. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Ripple effects from the auto workers strike has forced General Motors to temporarily shut down its auto assembly plant in Kansas. As Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports, part shortages and other problems are spreading across the country. The GM Fairfax plant in Kansas City, Kansas, builds mid-sized Chevy sedans and small Cadillac SUVs, using parts produced in another GM plant in Missouri. Workers at Fairfax aren't on strike, but UAW workers in Missouri are, which has created a part shortage at the Kansas plant. So GM stopped production there, sending about 2,000 hourly workers home. GM doesn't plan to pay the workers any compensation as the company usually does because it's idling the plant due to a strike. But the UAW says it will pick up part of the workers' wages from its strike fund. The UAW is striking all three big U.S. automakers. Ford and Stellantis have also laid off hundreds of workers in facilities that supply or rely on the plants directly hit by the strike. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. People with severe allergies will have to wait for a needle-free alternative to their EpiPens. The Food and Drug Administration has declined to approve a nasal spray version of the medicine, as we hear from NPR's Sydney Lupkin. In May, an FDA panel of outside advisors voted 16 to 6 in favor of approving a new drug called Nephi. Made by ARS Pharmaceuticals, Nephi is an epinephrine nasal spray that could replace EpiPens in emergency situations. In a rare move, the FDA this week went against the majority vote and told the drug maker more studies are needed. The advisors who opposed the approval, including the committee chair, said there were too many unknowns about Nephi's safety and effectiveness. Since epinephrine is used in emergencies by patients outside the hospital, they said they couldn't afford to be wrong, especially with the tried-and-true EpiPen available. Sydney Lupkin, NPR News. Despite the Fed holding the line on interest rates, stocks closed lower today. The Dow was down 76 points. The Nasdaq fell 209 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healey is introducing a new review board aimed at supporting veterans who were discharged under the military's Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy. The federal policy prohibited LGBTQ plus service members from being open about their sexual orientation or gender identity. Governor Healy says the new Veterans Equality Review Board will give those discharged access to state-based veterans' benefits. Our work is not done, and we need to make sure that all of our veterans and all of our LGBTQ veterans in particular are truly honored for their service by making sure that as we go forward, they receive the benefits that they earned and are earning by serving our country. U.S. military officials estimate 100,000 service members were forced out of service between World War II and the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell in 2011. Congresswoman Lori Trahan of Massachusetts is slamming Republican House members for threatening another government shutdown. Lawmakers face a September 30th deadline to pass a new spending bill to keep the federal government up and running. Trahan spoke today on the House floor and blamed GOP members for holding up the bill. This deal, hashed out by Republicans, for Republicans, was a disaster from the start. And the fact that it fell apart even quicker than it came together is embarrassing for the majority of this chamber. Republican lawmakers are expected to consider a stopgap measure this week to fund the government into October. Boston College has suspended its men's and women's swimming and diving teams indefinitely. The school made the announcement today after an investigation found hazing within the programs. In a statement, the school says it will not tolerate hazing in any form. 
There is a minor flood warning in effect now through tomorrow afternoon for parts of Essex County. The Shawsheen River is expected to crest later this afternoon in Andover. The flood stage is 29 feet. The river is currently at 28 feet. Drivers are advised to avoid flooded roadways. In the forecast overnight tonight, starlit skies. On the chilly side, temperatures in the mid-50s. Then for tomorrow, sunny once again. Clouds around, but a lot more sun. Highs just above 70. Friday, partly to mostly sunny, right about 70. 73 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. If you were watching for any sign that the U.S.-Iran prisoner swap might crack open the door to improved relations between the two countries, you would not have found it at the United Nations yesterday. President Raisi of Iran addressed the diplomats gathered for the U.N. General Assembly. But he spoke not of diplomacy, but of revenge. Revenge for the 2020 killing by the U.S. of a top Iranian general. Well, this was a strikingly different scene from the one that played out earlier in the day on the tarmac at Fort Belvoir, Virginia. Five Americans detained for years in Iran stepped off a plane and back onto U.S. soil. Among them, Siamak Namazi, the longest-held U.S. citizen in Iran, detained since 2015, or, as Namazi put it in a statement he released during that long trip back to the U.S., 2,898 days of what should have been the best days of my life stolen from me. Well, when he stepped off that plane yesterday, his brother Babak was there to greet him, and Babak Namazi joins me now. Welcome. Hi, Mary Louise. Describe that moment as you were waiting on the tarmac. Were you practicing in your head what you would say to your brother? It's beyond description what what someone goes through uh, as that moment they've been waiting for eight years uh, finally arrives. I, I kept feeling this is yet another dream that I'm having and, and I was just horrified that I'm going to wake up from it. So it was really just elation and gratitude and disbelief uh, all, all combined uh, together. What were his words, his first words to you, if I may ask? There were no words. It was us just rushing uh, towards our loved ones and, and, and grabbing and, and holding them for dear life. And it's, it's again, it's something I cannot describe, that feeling I've never, ever experienced. When you, when you finally get to hug someone you've been struggling to get out for the past eight years and, and you finally get to do it. And how's he doing? He's off now for medical exams and just to check that everything's all well? Yeah, I think um, like like the rest of us and I imagine the rest of the hostages, um, they're also in disbelief. I mean, until hours and hours ago, there were, there were hostages uh, for many years and then all of a sudden they weren't. All of us are, are waiting for our brains to catch up with that reality. Yeah. Well, and for your family especially, because I want to note that your father, Bakar Namazi, was also held in Iran uh, for years. And I and I wanted to ask about the conditions in which they were held. I was surprised, this is back in February, to notice that your brother from inside Avin prison in Tehran was tweeting out an interview that I had done with Iran's foreign minister. I, I guess I didn't realize that 
news would reach him there and that he was able to to tweet it out from the inside. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, one, one thing that, that I think made me survive this, I mean, let alone Siamak, who obviously was going through this hell, was Siamak's courage uh, and resilience and, and his uh, desire to push back and, and make sure that he doesn't make easy for, for the hostage takers. And, and one thing for him was to be try to be his own voice as much as possible. So yes, he had uh, uh, access to it. When I say access to a, t- a Twitter account, not directly, obviously they don't have internet access in there. So, you know, it was an account that was controlled by us uh, uh, and, and his uh, lawyers. Okay, so this is you reaching him on a phone in the prison and him reacting and then you being able to communicate for him. Yeah, and I, I have to tell you, every single time uh, that he, uh, he he was doing these things, I, I, I tried to discourage him because I just feared. I, I was always fearful. And then he said, Babak, I'm in here. What, what else can they do to me that they haven't done to me? And it's so important for me to be my own voice as well. And he was surrounded by evil forces, and yet he was more courageous than I was. While celebrating, of course, we'll have heard some of the criticism of this deal, of this prisoner swap, um, that it will only encourage more hostage-taking by Iran, and that it, a deal like this will extend a lifeline to the ruling establishment there. What do you make of that criticism? I'm not sure to, what to make out of that criticism. You know, 3,000 days, close to 3,000 days is, is how many days Siamak was held in horrific conditions. About two-thirds of that uh, was, was for my father. Can you just imagine any, anyone who criticizes family members to be reunited? Just imagine for, for one moment what it's like to be, you know, uh, torn away from your family members. I'm, well, I'm, and to be clear, I don't think the criticism is being directed at families. It's no, I know it's not. It's at the U.S. for American policy. I'm sure. I'm, I'm not a politician. I'm, I'm sure the president... Uh, I made a very, very difficult decision, but a decision that was well-reasoned, and I'm, I'm grateful for it, that he made that courageous decision, what, what, what it took. Uh, but my heart goes out to whoever is, you know, uh, in Iran still and in others, uh, in other prisons, other Americans elsewhere. You know, we, we have a duty to do all we can to bring, bring hostages home. It does prompt one more question. I was thinking about your family when I listened to uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken on Monday giving a very clear warning to U.S. citizens, and the warning was, do not travel to Iran. U.S. citizens should not travel to Iran for any reason. People should, of course, travel wherever they wish, but is there an argument to be made that people with dual citizenship, people like your family, should think very hard about that? I mean, we thought these warnings was for other people, you know, where we haven't done anything wrong. You, you know, you have extended roots, you know, originally being from Iran and, of course, relatives and heritage. I don't know what to say to that. We, we, we are examples of what happens when you think everything's going to be fine until it's not. Once he's cleared by the doctors, once he's done whatever paperwork awaits him, what does your brother plan to do first? <laughs> I mean, I, I think he's going to do silly things and serious things. He, he wants to uh, breathe the fresh air. I mean, I was astonished uh, when I saw, like, the, you know, live pictures of him getting off the plane like, like everyone else did. And I, I could tell that he's just taking that first deep breath of, of freedom. I think it's just enjoy the very, very simple things we, we all take for granted every second and every day. Uh, it's, it's to just walk around. It's not to be in, in a room with 25 other people. It's going to bed when he wants to. It's to eat what he wants. It's to talk to whomever and whenever he wants. It's to have a juicy burgers. You know, just, just to be a human being again. Babak Namazi, 
His brother, Siamak Namazi, was held for eight years in Iran. He is one of five Americans freed this week in a controversial prisoner swap. Thank you. No problem at all. I'm always grateful to be on the show, especially on this occasion, to be talking about my brother's release and not what we need to do to get him out. For months, House Republicans were split on whether to pursue impeachment against President Biden. Some of the most outspoken GOP opponents of impeachment came from the most competitive House districts that could decide control of the House in 2024. But after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced an impeachment inquiry was happening, many of these lawmakers said they support the probe. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh reports. Nebraska Republican Don Bacon didn't think the House needed to launch an impeachment inquiry. I don't want to get in the spot where we're doing impeachments every president. It's not what the founders want. It's not good for our country. President Biden won in his Omaha district in 2020, but Bacon outperformed then-President Trump to win re-election. The former Air Force general publicly opposed impeachment, but once the speaker announced an inquiry, he said he would follow his leader. I'm in the military. I I give my recommendations. And I move on. Impeachments used to be rare, but in his seven years in Congress, Bacon says he could be involved in three impeachments. I'm going to be in this. It could be my third impeachment out of five in our country, in the history of our country. I don't think that's a good precedent, not a good trend. California Congressman John Duarte also represents a purple district. He's quick to point out that the House is now engaged in an impeachment inquiry, not impeachment. It kind of lets us become a grand jury with subpoena power. The inquiry distinction allows McCarthy to thread a needle. Hardline Republicans are happy the process has started, while members in swing districts like Bacon and Duarte can defend against attacks of a rush to judgment. Duarte's rural Central Valley district includes a lot of farmers worried about water issues. Impeachment is low down on the list he hears about, but he says... We simply have to do this. You know, we, we, we need to get to the bottom of it. There's enough circumstantial evidence to warrant the inquiry. His colleague Mike Garcia was elected from another California district, rated as a toss-up seat heading into the 2024 election. Garcia says allegations about money the president's son Hunter received from foreign business interests being deposited into shell companies are enough of a reason for the inquiry. There's smoke there, right? So we have a requirement to go investigate that to see if there's actually fire there. But the three committees who have been investigating the president and his family for months have not found any direct link between the president's son's business income and the president. Garcia pushes back at the idea that investigating the president without first showing that link is a bad idea politically. There seems to be this national narrative that people in swing districts don't want accountability and truth, right? That's not the case. Uh, There's a reason why I still win in a district that Biden won in 13 percent. The head of the House Republicans campaign arm, Richard Hudson, who has been arguing impeachment wasn't a top tier issue with voters, agrees now it's okay to move ahead with it. Well, I think people want to know the facts. I think people want transparency and accountability from their government. That's what we're giving them. Democrats are targeting Mark Molinaro's district in upstate New York. He backs the inquiry and says New York voters care about allegations of corruption. I think at the end of the day, uh, it is our responsibility to identify whether or not these acts of impropriety uh, rise to the level of, of actual corruption. And Speaker McCarthy insists the House is just engaged in fact-finding. Where impeachment inquiry is not impeachment. So what impeachment inquiry is to do is to get answers to questions. But it tests whether voters will care about the difference. Now that the Speaker has public support from these most vulnerable members, the House could be getting closer to voting to impeach the president. 
Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, The Capitol. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes in one of the longest-running Holocaust restitution cases, works by an Austrian expressionist painter were handed back to their rightful owners today in an emotional ceremony in New York. The original owner was murdered by the Nazis. That story and much more still to come. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And Bass Berry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. Stocks slid on Wall Street today. The Dow fell about two-tenths of a percent. S&P lost nearly one full percent, and the Nasdaq dropped more than one and a half percent. Massachusetts energy company Ascend Elements is moving from Westboro. company is heading to a 100,000-square-foot facility in Devons. Ascend Elements specializes in battery recycling technology. It's valued at one and a half billion dollars. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Book Festival, happening in Copley Square October 14th. Bring the kids to see Percy Jackson author Rick Riordan, M.T. Anderson, Jacqueline Davies, and more. It's free thanks to sponsors like the John Henry Family Foundation. Details at bostonbookfest.org. Clear and chilly overnight tonight, temperatures in the mid-50s. For tomorrow, bright sunshine once again, highs near 72 degrees. Could see the sunshine yet again on Friday before clouds and maybe rain moves in for the weekend. This is 90.9 WBUR, 73 degrees in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. The Federal Reserve decided to hold interest rates steady today, but that doesn't mean the Fed's battle against inflation is over. Fed policymakers signaled that there could be one more rate hike before the end of the year. Inflation has come down a lot from its four-decade high last year, but there are still challenges ahead, including the prospect of triple-digit oil prices. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. And Scott, the Fed has raised rates aggressively over the last year and a half in its efforts to curb inflation. So why they decide to take a break now? You know, the Fed is trying to strike a balance. They want to push borrowing costs high enough to get prices under control, but not so high that they torpedo the economy. And when they started this process, their benchmark rate was close to zero, so they had a long way to go. After 11 rate hikes in the last 18 months, though, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell says they're now pretty close to where they want to be. 
we have come very far, very fast in the rate increases that we've made. And I think it was important at the beginning that we move quickly, and we did. As we get closer to the rate that we think the stance of monetary policy that we think is appropriate to bring inflation down to 2% over time, you know, the risks become more two-sided. That is, the Fed now has to worry more about pushing rates too high. So Powell and his colleagues are going to take a breather, see how the economy reacts. Most members of the rate-setting committee still think, though, there will be one more rate hike either in November or December. Okay, we'll keep watching that. I mean, Scott, so far the economy seems to have weathered these rate hikes pretty well. So does that mean the Fed has achieved that elusive soft landing? You know, uh, the the economy has done pretty well. We've seen a drag in some sectors, notably the housing market. But overall, consumer spending and the job market have fared better than a lot of forecasters expected. Fed policymakers today raised their forecast for GDP growth. Uh, They lowered their forecast for unemployment. Powell says he thinks they might be able to get inflation under control without tipping the economy into recession. I've always thought that the soft landing was a plausible outcome, that there was a path You know, Powell says that path has seemed very narrow at some points in the last year and a half. Right now, maybe it looks a little bit easier. But he acknowledged there are still headwinds facing the economy, so the outcome is not entirely under the central bank's control. Give us some examples of those headwinds he's talking about. Well, one is what you mentioned, the the uptick in oil prices and gasoline prices, which has led to higher headline inflation the last couple of months. You know, energy prices tend to bounce up and down a lot, but Powell said if oil prices stay up, that could do some damage. Energy prices are very important for the consumer. This can affect consumer spending. It certainly can affect consumer sentiment. I mean, gas prices are one of the big things that affects consumer sentiment. It really comes down to how persistent, how sustained these energy prices are. Another wild card is the ongoing UAW strike. Powell was careful not to take sides in that labor dispute, but if it goes on for a long time, that could affect the broader economy and inflation. We've also got the looming threat of a government shutdown. Now, government shutdowns typically don't have a big economic uh, impact, but if one were to happen, the government agencies that gather economic data could be sidelined for a while. And, of course, it's harder to make a soft landing when you're flying blind. Makes sense to me. NPR, Scott Horsley, thanks as always. You're welcome. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. More than 2,000 apartments that are supposed to house the poorest people in Massachusetts are empty. Some have been vacant for years. These are state-subsidized units. A WBUR and ProPublica investigation shows the biggest reason they're left empty is a backlog for maintenance and renovation. Local public housing authorities say it's hard to get these units in shape because communities are cash-strapped and short-staffed. WBUR's Christine Wilmson explains. Michael Laura steps down the rickety stairs to the basement of a duplex in Watertown. He's the executive director of the housing authority that manages this low-income unit. We look down at the drain system. This is decades old, and no one tried to fix it and maintain it when there wasn't funding to do it. He points to an old water stain four inches from the floor. That's how high the water gets sometimes. So they capped it and put in a sub pump over there, hoping that would solve the problem. It doesn't. This unit sat vacant for 10 months because maintenance staff and contractors were busy on other projects. Wet basements and mold are persistent problems for the nearly 170 units in this public housing complex called Lexington Gardens. Laura even recommends tenants put their washers and dryers on wood pallets to keep them safe. 
Fixing all these problems takes a lot of money, something Laura says the state fails to fully provide. If we had more resources, both for materials, contracts, and especially labor and personnel, I have no doubt we'd be seeing these vacancies turned around in half the time. Watertown is one of more than 200 housing agencies that are financially dependent on the legislature to carry out programs and maintain safe properties. Housing authorities also receive rent from tenants. Laura and I head upstairs to another apartment and meet maintenance supervisor Pat Breen. He is one of six men who repair and maintain Watertown's 550 units. It's not easy. It's a nightmare. State officials expect Breen's team to clean, paint, and fix minor damage in a unit in less than 60 days. Breen says that's impossible because of the emergencies they have to deal with. A pipe is burst or an apartment is flooded. You get to drop everything, go do that. There's not much more you can do, really, when you don't have enough staff. That's a complaint Donna Brown-Rigo hears a lot from local housing authorities. She is the director of the Massachusetts chapter of the National Association of Housing and Redevelopment Officials. Well, it's always about the money. They've been underfunded both on the operational side and the capital side for a number of years. Brown-Rigo lobbied state lawmakers this year to double last year's budget to manage and operate the state's units. Instead, the legislature approved a more modest 16% increase. The state set aside some money for Watertown and a few other housing authorities for renovations. State Senator Lydia Edwards co-chairs the legislature's Joint Committee on Housing. She says she's pushed for more funding. We have to invest and we're going to have to make it our, our mission in the next decade to, to catch up. There's another problem looming. There are nearly 42,000 state public housing units, and the average age is 57 years. Massachusetts officials say there's at least a $3 billion backlog to replace components that are past their useful life, like roofs, plumbing, and heating. Here's Brown Rigo. The older they get, the more it takes to, to fix them up. Some of these units haven't been touched in more than 20 years. That's the case in the coastal fishing city of Gloucester. Most apartments have the original floors, windows, and cabinets. Housing director David Holden says the buildings need $21 million for renovations, but the state only gave them about $600,000 last year. We end up having to triage those most immediate needs. And each year, the list of deferred items grows. Holden says he's tapped city and private resources to help finance small projects for housing designated for older residents and people with disabilities. People have the right to age in dignity with a decent place to live. And our ability to maintain that becomes more difficult every year. Not being able to fix small problems has had a domino effect. Units have been demolished in places like Adams, Lowell, and Fall River, some because they've become uninhabitable. Affordable housing advocate Brown Rigo says that can't happen. We can't let a single unit go offline. We need to preserve them all. But advocates say the current funding for public housing won't make a dent in the problem. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Christine Wilmson. Tomorrow on WBUR, as 180,000 people wait for state-funded housing, some of the apartments they could be moving into have been converted to offices and even a police station.
If you're a newcomer to Boston or just a frequent traveler, there's a fair chance you pass through Logan International Airport in East Boston. But have you ever truly explored the neighborhood around Logan? It's time for a tip from our field guide to Boston. East Boston, or Eastie as locals call it, is an immigrant neighborhood to its core. For almost two centuries, first-generation Americans have made it home. And today, Latinos from Colombia, El Salvador, and Guatemala make East Boston one of the most ethnically diverse communities in the city. A tip from locals, make sure you go get a pupusa, the melty, cheesy, doughy Salvadoran staple, at 2 Metapan on Bennington Street. To get more familiar with what makes Boston's communities unique, check out the Field Guide to Boston at wbur.org slash fieldguide. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Dozens of countries have taken the floor at the United Nations top court in The Hague to insist that Ukraine has the legal right to sue Russia for genocide. As Terry Schultz reports, Russia is arguing the case should be thrown out. The International Court of Justice does not automatically have the right to adjudicate all disputes between UN members. So ICJ judges are hearing legal arguments presented by governments over whether they have the right to hear a case lodged by Ukraine two days after Russia began the war in February of last year. Kyiv's case alleges Russia twisted international law on genocide to claim Russian speakers were being persecuted in Ukraine and that it's actually Moscow which was planning genocide. The 18-month-old request asks the court to order Russia to immediately stop its attacks and pay reparations. Russia says the court does not have jurisdiction. An unprecedented 32 countries presented arguments in favor of Ukraine, including all European Union members except Hungary. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. The Federal Reserve left interest rates unchanged today while leaving the door open for another possible rate hike in November or December. Here's Fed Chair Jerome Powell. Recent indicators suggest that economic activity has been expanding at a solid pace. And so far this year, growth in real GDP has come in above expectations. Recent readings on consumer spending have been particularly robust. Activity in the housing sector has picked up somewhat, though it remains well below levels of a year ago, largely reflecting higher mortgage rates. Fed policymakers say they expect an additional quarter percent rate hike by the end of the year to combat stubborn inflation, which has fallen sharply from a year ago, but inched up in July and August, largely due to higher gas prices. Some forecasters, though, think the Fed will have to leave rates higher for longer to get to their target rate of 2 percent. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey and the head of the MBTA met today to talk about T employee safety. The meeting comes on the heels of a Boston Globe report that a red line train nearly hit track workers in a tunnel earlier this week. WBR's Rob Lane has more. Federal transit officials are keeping tabs on what they call near misses between MBTA trains and workers, of which there have been several over the past few months. Governor Healy told WBUR's Radio Boston such incidents are unacceptable, but she has confidence in T-General Manager Phil Eng to fix the issues. Safety of workers and riders is our top priority. And so, you know, nobody wants this with greater urgency than I do. The governor's meeting with Eng today comes after a meeting yesterday also focused on transit safety between Healy, Eng, and the head of the Federal Transit Administration. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. 
Massachusetts taxpayers will not be getting an automatic tax rebate this year. Last year, a 1986 law kicked in that uh, gave nearly $3 billion in surplus tax collections back to residents. This year, State Auditor Diana DeZoglio's office says tax collections for the last fiscal year fall more than $4 billion short of the cap needed to trigger that law again. State lawmakers are considering a proposal to allow students with prescriptions for medical marijuana to use it at school. Democratic Senator Susan Moran of Falmouth proposed the bill. It got a hearing yesterday before the Joint Committee on Cannabis Policy. She says if kids prescribed medical marijuana for serious medical conditions could access it on school grounds, it would help them focus on learning. There's a lack of awareness of the trauma of whether it's an emotional issue or a medical issue like seizures with kids. We need to do everything we possibly can to combat that. Medical marijuana use was legalized in Massachusetts in 2012, but all forms of the substance are still prohibited on school property. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And Bridgewater State University, hosting Nobel Peace Prize laureate Lech Walesa. On campus, October 3rd, bridgew.edu slash events. In the forecast, chilly overnight tonight, down around the mid-50s. Tomorrow, sunshine again, some clouds around, with high temperatures just above 70 degrees. 72 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. President Biden has tapped former Commerce Secretary Penny Pritzker to serve as his special representative for Ukraine's economic recovery. Pritzker's goal is to work with the Ukrainian government, financial institutions, and American companies to, quote, help forge Ukraine's future as a prosperous, secure European democracy. That's according to a press release from the State Department. But what does that look like in a country that is still at war? Well, let's ask Penny Pritzker herself what she thinks. She joins us now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Elsa. Well, thank you for being with us. So, yeah, how much can parts of Ukraine start rebuilding now while the war is still going on? Well, I think there's a a real opportunity to start uh, recovery now. First of all, the Ukrainian government is very much focused on it. They know that that will help them with their own resilience. And they have a lot to offer. Europe, you know, uh, Ukraine is Europe's breadbasket. They're an IT hub, and they have a prospect of becoming a steel, critical minerals, wind and gas supplier to Europe. Let's talk about that breadbasket bit. As you know, the country was known as the so-called breadbasket of Europe. So what are the biggest barriers to rebuilding the country's agricultural sector? Well, the challenges with agriculture are a couple. 
uh, in the sector. First is that there's been a lot of mining of the land, which um, so you there's going to be a big need for demining. And the second is really um, just to be clear, talking about land mines. Landmines, actually, and then exactly, and then there's the issue of being able to actually export the grain out of the country. And Russia, through their horrendous aggression, has been bombing not only the silos that contain the grain, but also then making it very difficult for uh, the sea lanes to operate to get the grain out of the country. How do you think the U.S. can specifically help with the demining of the land there? Well, it's it's demining is a very slow and laborious process, but unfortunately, there's been you know more war in the world, and so there's a lot of expertise to help with demining, and so you know it's something the Ukrainians actually have developed their own expertise, and other countries are helping. Okay, and it sounds like we have a little bit of delay on the line as we're speaking. Do you see other emerging sectors in Ukraine's economy that you think might play a bigger role than agriculture after this war is over, assuming this war will be over one day? Absolutely. Well, I think first of all, IT. There's they have an in fact their technology sector has been growing. Metals and mining. They have enormous capability in that area. Transportation and logistics energy. They have an opportunity to leapfrog their whole energy grid to become a green energy system. And then defense, defense manufacturing and providing defense, you know, rearming the West, which has been helping them, you know, to engage in this uh, uh, war. Well, let's talk about corruption, because, I mean, Ukraine has long struggled with a reputation for corruption. What concerns the U.S. most specifically about corruption in the country there? Well, look, while Russia's war poses an external threat to the country, corruption poses an internal threat to Ukraine's democracy, Mm -hmm. to their sovereignty, to the European aspirations, and frankly, to their economic resilience. And the people of Ukraine know this, and they've been very clear about their support for reforms that uh, will increase transparency and good governance. There are things like a need for an independent anti-corruption institution, independent courts that can enforce the law. These are things that are absolutely essential, and we applaud President Zelensky's own commitment to countering and preventing corruption. Uh, And the European Council's unanimous decision to grant EU candidate status to Ukraine is also important here because in order to gain status in the EU, Ukraine will have to continue reforms. Well, as you embark on this very difficult challenge of helping Ukraine recover economically, how do you account for Ukraine's population loss when considering how it can recover? I mean, how do you attract back those Ukrainians who have settled elsewhere after the invasion? Well, I think the thing to keep in mind is is that... um, you know, Ukraine's recovery is essential to motivating people to return to the country. And I view the recovery as both a sprint and a marathon. We'll need to plan for long-term, sustainable, digital, clean, competitive European Ukraine, 
but that's the marathon. But we also need results now to jumpstart the revival and give Ukrainians confidence and the hope to come home and start building towards the future. And there is there is economic right. activity happening, quite a bit of it, and there is economic opportunity in significant portions of the country. Okay. That is Penny Pritzker, the new special representative for Ukraine's economic recovery. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Seven works of art stolen by Nazis have been voluntarily returned to their rightful heirs today in New York. The works were by celebrated Austrian artist Egon Schiele, and they were given back by various museums and private collectors. NPR's Jasmine Garst has more. Egon Schiele was known for his fluid lines, erotic subjects, and bursts of color. He's also become a symbol of artwork stolen by the Nazi regime. The original owner of the Schiele pieces was Fritz Grunbaum, a cabaret artist who was outspoken against the Nazis. Grunbaum was sent to the Dachau concentration camp in 1941. Prosecutors say while imprisoned, he was forced to give power of attorney to his wife, Elizabeth. She was later coerced into handing over his art collection to Nazi officials before being sent to a death camp. Both the Grunbaums died in concentration camps. At the press conference held today by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, Air Timothy Reif had a request. When viewing these artworks, imagine Fritz and Elizabeth in their lively Vienna apartment, singing and dancing and cracking jokes, remembering their lives defeats Hitler's plan. It wasn't until the 1950s that several Schiele pieces resurfaced. They were in possession of a Swiss dealer who sold them to an American dealer. He sold them to several buyers. The works being returned have been valued at as much as $2.75 million apiece. Despite today's ceremony, there are still several Sheila works whose ownership is being contested. In fact, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office recently issued warrants to the Art Institute of Chicago, the Carnegie Museums of Pittsburgh, and the Allen Memorial Art Museum of Oberlin College. All three institutions say they acquired their Egan Sheila work legally, but the heirs say ultimately that's stolen property. At least one of the Grunbaum heirs has said they'd like to see this influence other art theft cases. Attorney Jennifer Crater has worked on art theft cases. She says, I do think we can expect to see more antiquities um, being returned. Legally, whether those claims would succeed is not consistent across all objects because the situation in which they left the country or were dug out of the ground and, you know, it, it, it's very different from place to place. But she says today's announcement establishes an important precedent. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. The United Auto Workers strike is becoming a campaign issue. President Biden touts his strong relationships with labor unions as he hits the trail. And Republican frontrunner Donald Trump is skipping next week's primary debate to go to Detroit to meet with auto workers. Meanwhile, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, who's also running for the Republican nomination, spoke to NPR's Asma Khalid and Susan Davis about this and other topics. Here's part of their conversation from the NPR Politics Podcast. Well, I feel that the the markets actually work uh, in the sense that uh, people can choose who they want to work for today. I mean, if you're if you're an auto worker and you don't like your wage, 
and you can, and you've got skill set, you can probably pick your city in America and decide I'm going to go work there and I'm going to live there. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I mean, the, the amount of availability for people who want to work is just through the roof. So right now, labor in this battle between, you know, uh, this creating pressure on, on wage rates going up, they've got a huge advantage. So I think they're, gonna, they're in a great negotiating position just because we've got a lot of people that aren't working in America right now. So I, I, I but I think markets work. I mean, we've got auto companies in this country that are non-unionized and they're not on strike and their workers are happy. So it's not like we, we can just take three of our auto companies, the oldest ones, maybe the ones that are, are most entrenched in, in history, but we can, you can look all over America at new auto plants where there are non, 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 non-union workers. They're happy. They've, they've got great work. They've got great benefits. They love their community. So it can work both ways in our country. Governor, you signed a near total ban on abortions in your state. If Congress sends any legislation to you that would enact federal restrictions on abortion, um, would you sign those restrictions into law? No. Care to expound? No, happy to. I, on the first day we announced, I got asked this question in my very first interview, and the answer is no. I mean, this goes back to the 10th Amendment. Uh, Republicans fought for 50 years to overturn Roe v. Wade. The Dobbs decision did that. It returned the power to the states. And then the very next day, we had Republicans saying, oh, no, we've got the federal government's got to get involved. I know this is a super important issue for people on both sides, but the idea that somehow we would say that in this one exception, we can violate the Constitution and the federal government can step in and take a power that was belongs to the states because the original 13 states created the federal government, not the other way around. Those states delegated powers to the federal government. The rest remains to the people or to the states. Governor, on immigration, do you feel that the United States should expand legal pathways to citizenship? Do you think that there are any other alternative ideas about what to do with the situation at the border? I mean, what are your broad ideas for immigration reform? Well, unfortunately, today, we need to secure the border before at least the, the Republican Party is willing to have a discussion about immigration reform. But it has to be on the top of the list. I've been down to the border multiple times. We have to fix it, but we are still fortunate. We have an opportunity when the, the best and the brightest in the world want to get to our country. We have an opportunity. And right now, even Canada, Canada has picked off a million people from our, that came to the U.S. to study. We educated them in our best universities. They got advanced degrees. Their student visas run out. We're going to try to send them home. And Canada puts up a welcome sign and a million people move north across the border that are high skilled to go help juice their economy. So we... We've got it wrong on every aspect on immigration, and it has to be fixed, and it has to be a top priority. And you can hear that whole conversation on the NPR Politics Podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday evening. Red Sox took it on the chin today down in Arlington, Texas, with a 15-5 loss to the Rangers. That cost the Sox the series. And today, the Bruins named Brad Marchand the 27th captain in franchise history. He takes over for Patrice Bergeron, who retired after last season. Listen to WBUR anywhere you venture. Download or update the WBUR app now and just tap to listen live. It's 548. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. 
Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for spring. bgsp.edu. A pretty glorious evening, clear and chilly overnight tonight, temperatures in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, bright sunshine again, highs near 72. Could see the sunshine yet again on Friday before clouds and maybe rain moves in for the weekend. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Science Festival, presenting an evening of live comedy, film screenings, performance poetry, art installations, and more. Friday, September 30th, CambridgeSciencefestival.org. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia shows its values by the way it's waging war. Not just a war on the front line. No. Energy system, occupied Zaporizhia, nuclear plant. What will be next? Zelensky makes a case for defending democratic values on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. It's time for another conversation about the different ways we find meaning in the world from our colleague, Rachel Martin. It's part of her series called Enlighten Me. Don't tell my children this, but I wasn't always sold on the idea of having kids. I grew up in a religious conservative town in Idaho, where for young women, college was considered a place to meet your husband. And if you got an education along the way, well, hey, that's a great example to set for all the kids you're going to have. That wasn't me. I wanted to see the world and get lost and find my way again and fall in and out of love. And I did all those things. For the most part, I did whatever I wanted. I moved from city to city, sometimes country to country. I was the center of my own life. And by the time I was in my early 30s, I was sort of sick of myself. I felt a deep need to take myself out of the spotlight of my own making. I wanted all the things I'd never prioritized. I didn't just want a stable, intimate relationship. I wanted a partner, a person I was spiritually and legally bound to. And I wanted all the joy and heartbreak of raising kids. I no longer saw marriage and parenting as social expectations set up to annihilate my identity. Instead, I saw them as opportunities to push the outer bounds of what it means to love. Where am I going with all this? This is my way of telling you why I connected so much with the conversation I had recently with Gia Tolentino. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker. She's also the daughter of Filipino immigrants who ended up in Houston, Texas as devout members of an evangelical megachurch. Growing up, Gia looked for transcendent experiences in religion and later in life in psychedelic drugs. She also felt ambivalent about having kids, but she just had her second child. And she told me she decided to become a parent because she was craving something existential. I was hungry for ego death in general, and I have sought experiences of ego death in various capacities in my life, you know, in drugs and certain experiences of music and art, but really mostly in drugs. <laughs> and, um, Explain what that means to you, ego death. I grew up extremely religious, and I think that one of the things that kept me religious for so long was the experience of sublimating the ego to a sense of the divine. And, you know, you would get it occasionally in prayer. Um, I would get it often in this giant, giant church that I was raised in. This was 
the kind of church where the pastor's face is on billboards throughout the highway and the sermons are broadcast on TV every Sunday and the worship center, as it was called, was three stories high and sat, I think, five to 6,000 people. I think it had the largest pipe organ in the state of Texas. Wow, that's saying something. But were you, you wanted to lean into those transcendental moments, even as a child. Yeah, I just realized I felt most like some particular version of myself that I, I liked accessing when I could feel the boundaries of myself dissolving and I could mm. feel myself as part of this like nebulous collective. And that always came with some sort of access point to mystery and some sort of access point to fear and, but also like love and connection, right? And you get that in church. And as I stopped believing in God, I started to seek that experience of the boundaries of the self dissolving in drugs and in music and just lots of dark rooms where people kind of felt the boundaries of the self go away. It felt good for me whenever I would have those experiences of ego death or ego dissolution. So I had my first kid in August 2020. So the experiences of that ego dissolution, they've happened so often in these experiences with my child, you know, when they happened in birth itself, this incredibly shocking event where you are nothing but a vessel. Right. And it's this shocking moment of revelation and this kind of the twinning of life and death and the like that felt divine in like the real way, like yeah. bloody and yeah. Yeah. terrifying, like the way that transcendence is always paired with terror, you know, yeah. there are kind of ecstatic moments like that. But I think I've had an understanding of ego dissolution in kind of a daily quiet submission mm -hmm. to the, these acts of care and to the well-being of another person. My natural ecstatic inclinations I, I used to spike really high all the time. Yeah. And I don't really anymore. It, it's like that impulse gets trickled out a million times a day in tiny ways. And so I no longer have these big reserves that I'll just be huh. like walking around in New York City and just feel like overcome with a sense of transcendence. Like I don't have that anymore. It feels like I'm I'm meeting it out every day on my children. And, you know, it's partly just getting older and like not right. having hours to just walk around at golden hour, you know, right. like you're just... Those are the peak indoor chaos hours in my home now. Does that feel um, like a grief to you or just it, a change? I feel like a little bit of grief about it, but I also think it's it feels right. Like it also feels entirely correct to this stage of life, which I've been reminding myself that three years from now, this will be an entirely different phase. Like death will come to play a larger part in it as time goes on. Yep. And I think my sense of independent experience certainly will shift again, hopefully shift dramatically in the next 10 years so that I'll start having more of them. <laughs> right yeah, now it's like there's, there's just always supply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just to be really basic about it, you see a spiritual component of parenting. Yeah, I do. And so far, I mean, my like, the the primary way that I think about the biggest sweep of all the stuff that we're talking about, let's be real, like it's still drugs. It's still <laughs> it's still like like last summer 
I was done breastfeeding. You know, I, I went to Montana with one of my best friends for three days and we went hiking and then we did acid and she's a born and bred downtown New York girl and, you know, staunch atheist. And she had this moment, you know, I mean, it was just, it was overpoweringly beautiful. And also we were on acid and she was like, how is it that we're alive at the same time as each other and as all this beauty and like we're both starting to cry and I was like girl this is this is why people believe in God you know <laughs> like totally like I'm reminded in those moments that now what I understand as the closest analog to God mm -hmm. is the fact that the laws of physics and biology create a world that begets life yeah there's a shimmer of the divine around you know just the fact of our existence to me and so in that way, my understanding of spirituality has bloomed to an inhuman scale. And then it has shrunk to the labor of taking care of a brand new life and the small moments of mystery and the unknown and also fear and also desperation that that experience brings you. I've so enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Gia Tolentino is a staff writer for The New Yorker. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From Proven Winners, with Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, offering a variety of native shrubs and trees for a landscape that's gentler on the earth. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash native shrubs. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Starlit skies tonight, a bit chilly as we dip to the mid-50s. Tomorrow should bring back the sunshine. Some clouds around, but a lot more sun. Highs just about 70 degrees. Then for Friday, partly to mostly sunny, right around 70 again. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Senator Marco Rubio, a Republican from Florida, hopes to expand the child tax credit while keeping in place a work requirement for those who receive it. The child tax credit has always been and has widely been accepted as a tax credit to be applied towards earnings. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Senator Rubio coming up. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Ukraine's president at the UN 
lashes out at Russia, saying it's waging a criminal, unprovoked aggression that undermines all norms of war. He tells NPR he needs more foreign aid to keep Russia from trying to expand its influence across Europe. Also, Prince Charles wows him in Paris, and art by Public TV's favorite American painter Bob Ross is on sale for only $10 million. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in New York, I'm Jack Spear. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says the United Nations is deadlocked on matters of aggression and needs to be reformed. He spoke at a U.N. Security Council meeting today. As NPR's Michelle Kellen reports, he got some U.S. support. Wearing his trademark army green, Zelensky accused Russia of acting as a terrorist state that is undermining international norms. Secretary of State Antony Blinken then weighed in, describing his recent trip to Ukraine, where he met with Ukrainians held hostage for a month by Russian troops in a basement of a school. In this war, there is an aggressor and there is a victim. One side is attacking the core principles of the UN Charter. The other fights to defend them. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, tried to blame the West for the conflict. He was not in the room to hear Zelensky speak, nor was the Ukrainian leader there to listen to Lavrov. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the United Nations. The White House is scrapping a plan to send senior Biden administration officials to Detroit to help resolve the UAW strike. NPR's Asma Khalid reports it comes as the president continues to face pressure to increase his support for striking workers. The day auto workers went on strike, Biden said he was dispatching acting Labor Secretary Julie Sue and White House Senior Advisor Gene Sperling to Michigan. He said they would offer their, quote, full support to the parties in reaching a contract. But they never went. And now the White House says it's more productive, given that negotiations are ongoing, for the officials to monitor the situation from Washington and allow the talks to move forward. The White House did not rule out future travel, but this comes after the UAW president said the White House has no role in brokering a deal. Separately, former President Donald Trump plans to skip the second GOP presidential debate next week and instead visit Detroit to court auto workers. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House. The Federal Reserve is holding interest rates steady, at least for now. But NPR Scott Horsley reports the central bank left the door open to possible rate hikes in the future. The Federal Reserve says it's still strongly committed to getting inflation back down to its 2% target. But after raising rates 11 times in the last year and a half, the central bank is content to stand pat this month. Members of the Fed's rate-setting committee hinted that another rate increase could be necessary before the end of the year. The committee has rate-setting meetings scheduled in November and December. Updated forecasts from Fed officials also suggest that interest rates may stay higher for longer next year. Inflation's fallen substantially since hitting a four-decade high last summer. But at 3.7 percent last month, it remains well above the central bank's 2 percent target. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Stocks lost ground today on Wall Street following the Fed's decision. The Dow was down 76 points. The Nasdaq fell 209 points. The S&P 500 dropped 41 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healey has written to the Biden administration to ask for more support to help migrants coming to Massachusetts. She says some 10,000 new arrivals are now living in the state's emergency shelter system, and neither the administration nor congressional leaders are responding adequately to the crisis. We need action. And we've given them exactly what they need to do. You know, my letter to, to, the, to the White House could not have been more clear in terms of 
simple steps that could be taken to address this. Also, Congress has an opportunity to act, um, but so far, you know, they're not willing to. Healy spoke today on WBUR's Radio Boston. Earlier this year, Healy opened new shelter spaces and declared a state of emergency to deal with a high number of migrants who have arrived. The criminal investigation connected to the transport of 49 migrants to Martha's Vineyard last September is now complete. The Martha's Vineyard Times reports that the district attorney from Bear County, Texas, will present the case to the grand jury in the coming weeks. The grand jury will determine whether a felony offense was committed. The migrants were sent from Texas to Massachusetts on flights arranged by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The man who died at Sunday night's Patriots game at Gillette Stadium likely died of a medical issue. That's according to initial autopsy. The Norfolk County DA's office says autopsy results suggest that Dale Mooney of New Hampshire did not suffer traumatic injury. Cell phone video shows the 53-year-old collapsing after he got into a fight with another fan and was hit in the head. The exact cause of death has not been determined and no charges have been filed. The National Fisheries Service is getting $82 million in federal funds to help protect endangered right whales. Eve Zukoff reports. Conservationists are applauding the investment, pointing to the fact that North Atlantic right whales are approaching extinction, with fewer than 350 individuals remaining. The biggest part of the funds will go toward better monitoring systems for the whales, including satellite tagging and acoustic monitoring. Almost $18 million will go toward developing on-demand or ropeless fishing technology, and then training fishermen to use the new gear, which is designed to reduce whale entanglements. The rest of the money will focus on reducing whale collisions with boats and enforcement efforts. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zuckoff. The state is beginning plans to replace the aging Tobin Bridge. Acting Transportation Secretary Monica Tibbetts-Nutt told state officials at a meeting today that the Healy administration is kicking off the process soon. The bridge connects Boston and communities north of the city. A request for proposals could be released as soon as Friday, seeking a consultant to study bridge replacement options. The study alone could take two years. The State Department of Public Health is declaring Worcester at moderate risk for West Nile virus. That's after the virus was detected for a second time in mosquitoes in a trap in the Grafton Hill neighborhood. Worcester plans to spray spray pesticides in the area tomorrow. Three human cases of West Nile virus have been found so far this year. The virus can potentially lead to serious illness. 71 degrees now in Boston, clear and chillier overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, sunny again. Highs near 72. Could be sunny again on Friday with a few clouds around. This is WBUR. It's 6.07. WBUR supporters include the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. An unusual thing happened a couple years ago. Nearly three million children in the United States were lifted out of poverty. That's because of an expansion of the child tax credit, which was passed as a part of the federal COVID relief package. 
Fast forward two and a half years, those expanded tax credits have expired, and new census data released last week show child poverty has surged to pre-pandemic levels. Many in Washington would like to see the child tax credit expanded again, including Florida Senator Marco Rubio, a Republican. Senator Rubio, unlike his Democratic counterparts, wants the expanded child tax credit to include work requirements. Senator Rubio, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, let's just get right into it. Explain why you think work requirements are so necessary here. Well, that I mean, certainly work requirement is one way to describe it. But basically, the way we've always viewed the child tax credit is you have a job and you get to expense the cost of raising children, the way businesses get to expend the investments they make. If we can have tax breaks for businesses that make investments, we most certainly should have the ability of working people to keep more of the money they earn in order to to raise their children, which is the most important investment we're making in our country. So that's what the tax credit has always been. It is a credit against taxes. Now, the problem was that people under a certain income level had no income tax liability to apply it to, which is why we always argued that it should be applied, at least part of it, towards the payroll tax, which is the primary tax liability of working parents. So yeah, it requires you to have a job because it requires you to have some tax liability that the credit applies towards. But I also think it recognizes that the the purpose of this program always was and should continue to be to allow working parents raising children to be able to keep more of the money they earn to be able to afford or help afford the costs of raising children in the modern economy. I just want to take a second to spell out the data here because I think it's really important. The new data that came out last week showed that All of the gains when it comes to child poverty that we saw in 2021, they were lost in 2022. There was an alarming rise in child poverty last year from 5.2% in 2021 to 12.4% in 2022. So given the fact that we're seeing this problem balloon into this huge need, how would you go about addressing that in an urgent manner? Well, first of all, I think to measure just based on one year, you basically had one year in which you had a child allowance. It wasn't a child tax credit from 2000 per child to $3,600 per child. So suddenly families are reporting $3,600 per child, uh, zero to five and 3000 for children above six to up to 17. And then it expires. So you're going to have that jump. But, but that is different from what we're trying to achieve here, which is we're trying to achieve an economy that produces the kind of work that parents are no longer in poverty, families are no longer in poverty. And that's a much bigger struggle if you think about what, and that really should be the cornerstone of what our focus is on economic policy. And I think we've lost that focus over the last 20 or 30 years, as we have seen economic decisions driven purely by market outcomes without considering the national interest in regards to that creation of that stable work. This is a topic we've been following closely on the show, and my colleague Ari Shapiro spoke to a pediatrician, Megan Sandell, last week, and this is what she told him about what she's seeing right now. What we're starting to see is kids flatlining, kids who should be growing, should be gaining weight, should be, frankly, growing the brain that they need for the rest of their lives, and we're seeing kids not grow. We're seeing kids lose weight which when you're three or four years old, that is a medical emergency, what's going on. And a lot of times when we really dig deeper, it's simply because people can't afford enough food and are stretching beyond what they can deal with. Senator Rubio, what would you say to someone like Dr. Sandell, who is seeing these kids as patients day in and day out, and who is clearly not just worried, but deeply frustrated and alarmed by what she is seeing in these patients? Well, I would say it's terrible to hear that in the most advanced economy in the history of the world, in the wealthiest nation in the world. 
uh, where an extraordinary amount of wealth is being produced every day. And we don't envy that wealth and we don't discourage it. But when we made the decision 20 or 30 years ago, that the only thing that mattered was efficiency in our economy, completely ignored our national interest in having an economy that both created economic growth and at the same time created stable, reliable, dignified, good paying jobs for Americans. Uh, we created an environment where people are struggling how to find that kind of work. And the other is inflation. When you look at the basic essentials, food, gasoline prices, all those prices have climbed alarmingly high uh, for everyone. And that of course puts an even greater strain on those that are struggling to begin with uh, to find jobs that pay enough. I think the current levels of how we measure inflation traditionally do not sufficiently take into account what it means when the things that cost more, sometimes 200% increases are the basic necessities. I understand throughout our conversation, there's kind of this fundamental notion of this is a tax credit, so therefore it's linked to someone's employment. But I guess after hearing what Dr. Sandel just said and the urgency with which she's talking about these three or four-year-old kids that are losing weight, not growing the way that they should, how do you think about the best way to reach those families and those kids with the urgency that their health needs to ensure that the kids who need the help the most are able to receive it as quickly as possible. Well, listen, I think in that realm, and again, children should not be punished because parents don't want to go work or what have you, or parents can't find a job, you know? So the, the, the point is, and that is that there's a bunch of other programs out there that we should have the debate over, whether there should be an increase in nutritional assistance, whether there needs to be a more targeted uh, focus on some of those social safety net programs for purposes of helping children who face uh, the, these circumstances. My argument with the tax credit is it's not the notion, it's what it's always been. The child tax credit has always been and has widely been accepted as a tax credit to be applied towards earnings. If you turn it into just simply a transfer payment, you've absolutely gutted the tax credit concept and I think you endanger, you endanger it moving forward uh, because that's not what people thought they were voting for when they first authorized it. It's tough enough as it is to get it increased. If you turn it into a transfer payment, I think it completely, you might as well not even call it the tax credit anymore. It, it becomes a transfer payment program. Republican Senator Marco Rubio of Florida. Senator, thank you. Thank you. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky attended a gathering of world leaders in New York this week. He also addressed an issue dividing American politicians. Zelensky wants the U.S. to continue arming and funding Ukraine's defense against the Russian invasion. And Democrats and most Republicans still support this, but right-wing Republicans increasingly object. Zelensky spoke with our colleague Steve Inskeep of NPR's Morning Edition, who is in New York. Hi, Steve. Hey there, Elsa. Hi. Okay, so how does Zelensky address those objections from some Republicans? Well, he's careful always not to say that he's wading into American politics, but he knows what's going on here, and you you mentioned it. Uh, some right-wing Republicans have been skeptical of this project from the beginning, and now House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said he would not accept a blank check, and this is now getting tangled up in these broader U.S. budget negotiations here in September. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, Zelensky argued that our two countries, the United States and Ukraine, still share and are fighting for similar values. Most of our conversation, I should tell you, he spoke Ukrainian, but he switched to English when I asked about this and became pretty passionate, knowing that he's appealing directly to the American people. Let's listen. If a Republican lawmaker, who you may meet during this visit, says... What's in it for the United States? Your answer is American values. Is that right? Yes, of course. We have the same values. 
freedom and democracy. And that's why we are fighting against Russia. And they want to cut it, to, to blow it, and, and, and that's it. And they not only think about it, they showed it, they killed our people, women, men, you saw it. They deported children, so you, they are bombing civilians. It's not about only front line, it's not simple war. And he says the way that Russia has waged the war has shown Russia's contrasting values. Well, how much longer, Steve, does Zelensky expect Ukraine to need assistance from other countries like the U.S.? What do you this, think? This was a big question on my mind uh-huh. uh, because this feels like a long war. I've covered wars. I've studied war. It's pretty basic to know that offense is harder than defense. The Ukrainians uh, had a miracle in stopping the Russian offensive, but now they're trying to push back the other way, and that is proving very difficult. So I raised with Zelensky the possibility that the hardest part of this war, the deadliest part of this war even, may be ahead. And he disagreed with me. Let's listen to that. I believe that the most difficult part of this war is already in the past. When we prevented the occupation of our capital city and together with the Kyiv region, we prevented the occupation of the major part of Ukraine and we control the 80% of our country, we deoccupied that. I'm confident about the situation because we can see that whenever we start pressing on the Russians, the Russians are starting to retreat. And now we are having the initiative on the battlefield. And the Russians have retreated some, but there's a very, very long way to go. Well, let me ask you, Steve, how did President Zelensky seem to you personally? Because he hasn't left the country much. There's no end in sight to this war, at least at this moment. So what were his spirits like, his mood to you? Well, he's an unassuming character when he arrived in our rather crowded hotel suite where we were to meet him. Uh, and it's a very interesting person. He's a very interesting person to meet. You know, when you're getting ready to meet a president, you put on a suit and tie. So I was dressed that way. I'm also, by the way, uh, wearing a suit and tie for you right now. <laughs> Thank you. Just I quite so appreciate you know. that. But of course, he's wearing the military fatigue or military gear that he's worn elsewhere in yeah, the world. Uh, and But but when all attention focuses on him, you get a sense of the weight on this person. And parts of our conversation were contentious when we looked into questions like, will Ukraine be able to resume their elections as they fight as the front line of democracy? And real quick, Stephen, about the 30 seconds we have left. I mean, what did Zelensky say about priorities for when the war ends? He did... Uh, talk about the end of the war and talked about uh, promoting a liberal economy. He wants a free and open economy that can encourage investment, encourage recovery and rebuilding, and encourage the millions of Ukrainians who fled to come back. That is NPR's Steve Inskeep. Thank you so much, Steve. Always glad to do it. And I understand that there will be lots more on Morning Edition in the next couple days. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us. Coming up at 6.30, business news and where we draw the line at false advertising. Stock slid on Wall Street today. The Dow fell two-tenths of a percent. S&P lost nearly one full percent. And the Nasdaq dropped more than one and a half percent. Massachusetts will be home to a new Department of Defense regional microelectronics hub. The federal government awarded $20 million for the facility today. The hub will help boost manufacturing of the technology used for most electronic devices. The quasi-government agency MassTech will lead the new program. It's 620. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen. Now accepting orders and helping you plan for your holiday catering needs. Learn more at FreshCityKitchen.com. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. The Red Sox are packing their bags and heading back home. Today they wrapped up with a series with the Rangers with a 15-5 to thwacking. That cost them the series. They get tomorrow off and then host the White Sox over the weekend. Clear skies for the quarter moon tonight, about the mid-50s overnight. Should see a good share of sunshine again tomorrow, down a few degrees from today, about 72 for a high. And then Friday, pretty much the same thing. Sunny skies, fair weather clouds, breezy and dry, right about 70. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Science Festival, September 25th through October 1st. Discover cutting-edge technology, celebrate innovation, witness the future of fashion, and more. And the International Institute of New England, welcoming and supporting refugees and immigrants in the community for more than a century. IINE.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. In Morocco, communities are still suffering after a 6.8 magnitude earthquake earlier this month left nearly 3,000 people dead and thousands more injured. That's according to the EU's Emergency Response Coordination Center. In addition to the human toll, thousands of buildings were destroyed, and major questions remain about how to rebuild and house those people who have been displaced. Kit Miyamoto has thought a lot about this. He's a structural engineer who specializes in earthquake resiliency. And he's currently in Morocco, traveling around the villages and assessing damage from the earthquake. When I caught up with him from Marrakesh, I asked him what's been standing out so far. First of all, yeah, if the villages or structures are built on top of rock area, like a bedrock, you know, versus the soft soil in the bottom valley, it has a huge difference in performance. So that's something that uh, we noticed that first thing, okay? And uh, secondly, this area been obviously earthquake prone for millions of years, you know, naturally, right? So interesting part of it, actually, believe it or not, traditional architecture here evolved throughout this earthquakes over the centuries. So if it built, right way like a really follow the tradition way it actually performed really well interesting the more traditional techniques of building these homes is actually more secure during earthquakes exactly for example where they built a roof roof is made of a wood and uh, you actually put this wood or timber almost penetrate through the wall so when the shaking happens, it doesn't fall off. So if you build like that, actually, they're almost indestructible, actually, because such a solid, solid right. structure, you know. But unfortunately, over the years, you know, many builders told me that owners want to cut costs. So therefore, they don't want to pay for it. So builders cut corners. And some of the uh, villages we visited, it's pretty amazing. I mean, the one village we visited, but it was about 500 people used to live there. 20% died. You're talking about, you know, only 400 left. This is amazing. Just that the earthquake was 11 p.m. 
and uh, here people st do stay up late. So, you know, it was a good thing 11 p.m. Even if it's a 1 a.m., 3 a.m., probably more people died, you know. Because they would have been in bed and not knowing to escape. That's right. That's exactly correct. How much of a risk are aftershocks at this point? Very big. And how much is that complicating efforts to provide safe homes for thousands of displaced people right now? It, it's very, uh, risk is high. I mean, aftershock usually lasts for magnitude 6.8. It will last probably one year. And sometimes aftershocks are even bigger than the first one. That's why people are pretty scared. They don't want to go back home yet. Even in some of our, you know, village buildings are completely fine. There's no cracks, but they don't want to, they don't want to go there, which I, I completely understand that. So as you're looking to help these communities rebuild there, how hard do you think it will be to balance the desire to preserve the cultural aspects of so much of the architecture there that has been destroyed while also making them safer? I think that the both coexist. If you really look carefully how the ancients, you know, built, you know, they understand the seismic risk. They understand how they build things, you know, to preserve lives. You know, they know how to do that. We just got to make sure that type of a very detailed understand, you know, nature of it, you know, what they're doing it to extract the information and then train the other masons and contractors in the area. And as these communities embark on the huge challenge of rebuilding, what is most needed right now? I think money. I was talking to some village elders, maybe 50% of a houses there is completely collapsed, right? Gone. And they lost something about like 40 people out of 300 people. I mean, just, just bad. They said that they are going to stay. They are going to rebuild. My question was, do you have enough money to reconstruct? They said, no, it's, it's a, it's a poor area. We estimate about the, uh, somewhere between $300,000 to $500,000. $500,000 to reconstruct whole thing, whole village. I mean, yes, that's a lot of money. But also, if you look at how many people impacting it, it's so much. You know, talking about 500 people here. You know what I mean? So I think that each of us have to contrib contribute little by little to make this happen because this disaster is a huge. That is Kit Miyamoto. He's a structural engineer who's currently assessing earthquake damage in Morocco. Thank you so much for spending even this small amount of time with us. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. A painting by the late artist Bob Ross could be yours, if you have a spare $10 million. The particular work for sale, titled A Walk in the Woods, was the very first that he made for his TV show, The Joy of Painting. Bob Ross would go on to paint hundreds of canvases in front of the camera, but this is just one of a handful that have been up for sale since his death in 1995. NPR's Emily Olson tells us why. Bob Ross didn't just talk about painting. He actually showed his viewers, step by step, how to make a landscape scene come alive. And there's no secret to this. Anybody can paint. All you need is a dream in your heart, a little practice. He typically made three paintings for each of his shows. One as a template, one for the camera, and a third afterwards for use in instructional materials. So if you do the math, that means Ross painted well over 1,100 canvases for the joy of painting. And that was just for the show. He said he painted around 30,000 works of art over his lifetime. And yet... One of the toughest finds is to try to find an original Bob Ross painting. That's Ryan Nelson, the owner of Modern Artifact Gallery in Minneapolis. 
It's one of the few places where you can find original Ross works up for sale. Nelson said Ross often just gave away his paintings to people, people who didn't always realize the kind of treasures they had on their hands. I can't tell you how many times I've bought paintings from other people that have found them at their local thrift stores. Roughly 1,200 of the original Ross paintings are being stored by his surviving company, Bob Ross, Inc., Kowalski says she can imagine how Ross might have reacted to that sticker price. Bob's thing was never really selling his paintings. He wanted you to paint your own and put it on your wall. So this painting that's up for sale now, A Walk in the Woods, it's a pretty rare commodity. It underwent a painstaking analysis in order to prove it was a Bob Ross original, and also that it was the very first one he painted for his show. And the way we did it was just very, very carefully study all of the different knife work and brush strokes. It turns out the work had been auctioned off in 1983, probably for less than $100. That's according to Ryan Nelson, whose gallery now owns the painting and is selling it for nearly $10 million. Kowalski says she can imagine how Ross might have reacted to that sticker price. I think he would have just blushed and giggled like crazy. <laughs> I do. <laughs> After all, for the so-called people's painter, Inspiring others was always the goal. The fame? That was just a happy accident. Emily Olson, NPR News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. And Historic New England. Inviting you to spend time with New England's storytellers this fall. Tour their 38 historic house museums. Visit their gardens and landscapes. And enjoy fun and informative programs and events. Learn more at HistoricNewEngland.org.